His name? Bond. James Bond. <laughs> this is The Greg Cody Show with Greg Cody. Pardon it. Here's your host, Greg Cody. Okay, let's start. We already did. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Greg Cody Show podcast, episode 27. And this is a big one. You seem uh, giddy. I mean, I'm, I'm almost shaking here because we have the biggest name guest in the, uh, the six-month history of this podcast. Not physically, because that would be Dan. But like, Yeah, exactly. Right. But <laughs> our guest today is Chuck Todd, the moderator of Meet the Press. And why do we have him on? A, because we could. And B, because Chuck Todd happens to be a Miami guy through and through, born and raised, a Miami-born Killian High School, the hugest Miami Hurricanes football fan on earth. And uh, it was a super fun interview. And, and we're going to be quick with the intro here because we want to get right to Chuck Todd. But I do want to talk Heat Bucks a little bit because... Um, what the buck is happening in this series? I'm telling you what. Now, in, in the name of transparency, we normally record this podcast, uh, which comes out every Monday morning. We record it Sunday to be as current and topical as we can. This one we're recording Saturday. Why? Because the annual PFPI Fantasy Draft is on Sunday at our place, and, and we have to gird for that. So basically, we're going to be recording this before Game 4. So Monday, Game 4 will have been played. But we don't have that result in hand yet. So right. it's 3 so, nothing. But that's just crazy that it's 3 nothing. Like, who had that? I know a lot of people had the Heat being competitive in this series, but nobody had the Heat up 3-0. And, and look, whether when you're listening to this, whether they've swept or they're up 3-1, they're still sitting pretty to uh, shockingly eliminate the top seed. And, and uh, man, that, that's going to put all kind of heat on Giannis. And I wonder how that's going to affect whether he leaves in free agency or not, whether he ends up someplace like Miami. I mean, we'll see, but um, I'm, I'm shocked that they're dominating this series. And Jimmy Butler, Jimmy Butler, Jay Butt, I don't know if that's one of his many nicknames, Jay Butt, not a very good nickname. He has more than impressed. Goran, uh, Adebayo, I mean, Tyler Hero, I mean, they're, they're flexing their whole it's... depth in their bench. You know, the Heat, I, I think one of the reasons we're, we're seeing this from the Heat, and, and, you know, this will be, whether they won or lost Saturday, th- this will be, their, uh, they're either 8-0 or uh, or seven and one in in the playoffs. Sundays when is they that play. you have yeah is, is that you have a lot of uh, quality parts in the hands of an elite coach. I think the world of Eric Sprolster and his ability to just maneuver this chess game. And and one example is Goran Dragic doesn't start all season long, and suddenly he's starting in the playoffs. And man, he it's like a rebirth for him. It's been fantastic to watch. Plus, I feel like. The Heat, quote-unquote, culture and the Heat team unity and being bonded together. Like, the thing, all the things the Heat pride themselves on, I feel like works well in a bubble. I feel like no team is more apt to just come together and be at their best in this weird, isolated bubble than a team like the Heat. I, I agree with that. And, and uh, you know, some of the Heat players, including Udonis Haslam, have pretty much said the same thing. And, you know, outside of South Florida – a lot of the intangibles that the Heat rely on probably seem like BS to a lot of people. Talking about culture, talking about family. But if, if you live in South Florida, if you cover the Heat, if you're a fan of the Heat, you know it's real. You know it's real. And, and I think the Milwaukee Bucks have found out that it's real. I mean, the Heat, you know, 
I don't know how they're going to do in the finals because Boston or Toronto are going to give them, I think, a tougher matchup than Milwaukee did, which is odd to say. But here are the Miami Heat with a legit chance to make the NBA finals. And they're swooning somebody in it. Like, because you know, Giannis has to be experiencing all of this, just being like, man, that ball movement. Man, like, those guys are fired up on the bench. Like, that seems like a that, – that, I feel like he's got to be looking at that, taking it all in, being like, I could see myself there. Well, uh, I, you know, I, I don't often refer in the podcast to things I've written. I don't want to be too self-promotional, but – This is the Greg Cody Show with Greg Cody. <laughs> Fair comment. But um, before this series, I did write a column saying that this series is, is about more than this series. It's about free agency. It's about having – uh, a week or 10-day platform to directly show who you are and impress Giannis. And, and you want to plant the seed in this guy's mind that, wow, next summer when I have my choice of where to go, are there really a lot of better options than the Miami Heat who just kicked my ass? You know, I, I think that carries some weight because he has been an eyewitness to everything right about the Miami Heat. I think we should plant the seed on this Chuck Todd interview. I'm telling you what, uh, I'm very excited uh, about having this guy. Um, Let, uh, let's get to it. You set, him, you, you set it up enough in the interview. You don't, have yeah. to, you don't have to tell the audience who he is for a third time. Okay, here we go. Enjoy. We're thrilled to have onto the podcast Chuck Todd, who, uh, as you know, uh, or may not know, is, is only the 12th moderator in, in the storied 73-year history of Meet the Press, NBC's flagship news program, which is the, I, I learned is the longest-running program in television history. And uh, no, I'm not quite old enough to have been around for its debut. But um, it, it's a terrific public affairs and analysis show, and, and it's highly rated, and, and Chuck does such a terrific job. But before we uh, actually allow him to speak, and I give up the mic for just a blessed second. I want to mention that uh, one of the reasons I was interested in having him on is that this guy's 305, man. He's born and raised Miami. He was banging around the halls at Killian High School, and he also claims to be uh, one of the most diehard Miami Hurricanes football fans ever born. So uh, with that uh, august introduction, uh, Chuck, truly welcome to the podcast. Greg, thanks a lot. I'm a, I'm a longtime reader as well as I, when, when you guys are doing hurricane stuff. So anytime I get to talk hurricanes football, I'm good with it. The one thing about you reminding people that we're the longest running television show is that it's a reminder that I cannot be the last moderator. You don't ever <laughs> want to be the last one because that means the show died. So, you know, I got to hurry up and hand it off. Well, you, you've had a good run. What are you now? Uh, you've been doing it like eight years or what? I lose track. This is my sixth year. But of course, in the Trump era, that feels like 20 years. <laughs> it does. These are such weird times we're in. And, and it's, it's got to be a thrilling, fascinating time to be doing what you do for a living, but also one of the great challenges. And we're going to talk to you about that uh, as well, about, uh, about hosting Meet the Press, about a little political talk. But we want to get into uh, some of the fun stuff first, um, Chuck. And I'm, and I'm wondering, uh, you're one of the kings of D.C. What are, the, what are the perks of being Chuck Todd? Uh, when's the last time you had to wait more than 30 seconds to be seated in a crowded restaurant? That is probably about the only perk, you know, I once I've joked is that, yeah, people in the restaurant business, they, you know, they, it can help occasionally. Um, my wife hates to admit that, but it can, and that, and that score, it can help occasionally. But I can't remember what eating out to dinner was like. I look forward to telling my kids about eating out to dinner and what that was like. Yeah, that's, uh, it, it's so weird, uh, th this thing we're all going through, and it, it doesn't show a whole lot of sign of letting up. I just 
I just read that Spain is, is sort of having a recurrence of the whole thing and that let that be a, a warning to other countries, including the U.S. So I have a feeling we're sort of in for the, for the long haul here. Um, Chuck, have you ever been mistaken for another celebrity? I, I, I'm, I'm curious about that. I, I don't particularly have a reason for asking it other than I wonder. I've gotten two weird ones. One is the actor from the, some HBO show called Flight of the Concords, just because the guy had a red goatee. <laughs> and I, I one time had a girlfriend claim I, I, I reminded her of the bass player of R.E.M. So not Stipe, I guess that would have been, um, God, I can't remember the guy's name. I got mistaken for, for him once, and I thought that was kind of cool. <laughs> Chuck, I think a lot of the people who know you well from uh, Sunday morning uh, television with Meet the Press are, are surprised that, that you were born and raised in Miami. How did that happen to be? Your folks were living down here because what? Like, give us the background on that. Well, so, you know, that's actually my favorite little thing every once in a while I run into. I'll, I'll get people to say, you know, you don't seem like somebody from Miami. You don't look like somebody from Miami. And then I'll always say, well, what does somebody, what does somebody look like from Miami? <laughs> and then they're like, um, yeah, exactly. And I'll, <laughs> look, believe it or not, my mother and father met at the University of Miami. My father was working and he was sort of, he was doing audio stuff and stuff and my mother was going there. So that's how they got there. My grandfather, my father's father was an engineer. And so my dad was born in Iowa, but my grandfather got a bunch of contracts to build sugarcane plants in Cuba. Mm. So he moved his engineering business to Miami in sort of 50, I mean, literally 57, 58. And so even my family, though we're not Cuban, my grandfather is one of those who I grew up with. I lost all this money. Castro took this because his business basically collapsed in, in Cuba. But my father and my grandfather stayed uh, in Miami. And so my father went to Palmetto High School, believe it or not. He was class of 66 in Palmetto High School. Hmm. Uh, and then um, I, was, I was born in doctor's hospital, lived in Coconut Grove for the first five years. As my parents said before, it was cool. Uh, and then it basically, they were going to knock down the apartment building to build condos. Uh, and my parents thought I, that five-year-old me should go to a slightly better. They thought the school district out in this new, newfangled area way out West on Kendall drive and 107th Avenue. when that was out West, of course, now that feels like, you know, the middle of the County, but uh, right. yeah. And I grew up basically out in Kendall, uh, out in Kendall from the age of five on and graduated um, from Killian. Who was Chuck Todd as a 16-year-old haunting the halls of Killian? Were you an athlete? Were you a nerd? Uh, what were you like in high school? Well, I, I guess I'd be called a band geek. I was, uh, I was the drum major of uh, my senior year. I was a pretty nice. good musician. And, you know, we'd like to think that we were cool for a bunch of, for a bunch of geeks. But uh, no, I mean, you know, I, I, I'll be honest. I loved high school. I'll just say this. I had a good time, and I'm glad social media didn't exist. <laughs> There you go. Um, on that, uh, I have to tell people um, uh, who don't know your age, you almost literally were raised in Kane's football glory days. Uh, you were 11 years old. I when was, they, yeah. When they won their first championship. Uh, you were in your late 20s when they won their last. I mean, you were raised on, on Kane's glory. Wh who or what led you to be such a Kane's football fanatic? Because you didn't go to UM. I didn't. My mother did. Uh, my father always wanted to. He never, he never did go to college. He was a fanatic, just a huge college football fan. What happened was my grandfather, the minute they got to Miami, and the only football in 1960 was uh, in Miami was the Hurricanes. So, in fact, my, for a while, the season tickets we had dated back all the way to the 19, 
57 that we were season ticket holders continuously in our family up until I let a year lapse and it was my fault sort of in the late 90s. You know, my grand, it was more of like my grandfather, oh, I should have season, I should have tickets to the to, to college football around here. And this was, again, this was right before the Dolphins. So my father just, we went to every game. I didn't miss a game from 78 until 87, wow. a home game. Wow. Um, we, I mean, it was just, we planned our lives around it. We were such fanatics. My father died in the 88 season. He died in November of 88. You know, that was the year that we had that incredible comeback against Michigan. And we watched that together and he got to watch that out of his hospital room. But literally he planned... They plan procedures around hurricane football. The point is, is that we really, our lives revolved around it. And it was always such a bummer to me that the hurricanes weren't number one in Miami. You know what I mean by that? Like, I was this rabid fan, but there always felt as if there were more rabid Dolphins fans or more rabid, you know, this fan. Chuck, I'm wondering, what's it like to, to be with you uh, at your house during a UM game you're watching? Are you one of these fans who are tough to be around because you're so yeah, I'm a, I'm a whole yes my son is a diehard he's the wash and I'll sit there and say will you relax and he'll say this is what you do during hurricane games and <laughs> he's right I mean and so I'm not a, a lot of fun to be around it's especially the last 20 years it's terrible to say because right. I'll be honest I'm one of those I'm eternally optimistic I believe we're always once Saturday away from we're back <laughs> the swagger's back and all this stuff I do. And yet, and then I'll just be like, I, oh, and I'm always like, I never blame the players. I always blame the coaching, right? Because I'm like, literally, and anybody can recruit, though that's not, it turned out that wasn't the case in the last 10 years. That's sort of my mindset in these games. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a little, I'm a tough fan in that respect. Well, well, Chuck, that uh, leads me into the present and and what you think of uh, Manny Diaz and, and what you thought of last year. Last year was an embarrassment. They were six and seven, including losses to FIU and, oh, and wow. Louisiana Tech in the bowl. I mean, I don't have to tell you, you lived it. Um, what do you think of Manny and, and the state of the U right now? My son actually talked me into it. We drove from, uh, we have a, we, we, we spend, uh, my wife's from Pensacola. So we always spend the holidays in Pensacola. And my son and I decided to drive to Shreveport and we went to that mess. Oh, I mean, man. it was just, and you just saw it and you were just, and I have to tell you last year hurt more than, more than a lot of the other years, because I believe in Manny. I do. I love the fact that Manny and I had the same childhood. You know, we, we grew up, we're basically very, we're about the same age. He understands the community. He understands what makes my university of Miami. It's a different cell to these kids. This isn't about amenities. There's a culture here. So I'm a huge believer in Manny as a leader. And so I, it was a gut punch that they didn't perform better. But, I, you know, this is why I'm glad he held the offense accountable the way he did. I mean, we, it, it, it's, it was a gut punch. But I'm once again eternally optimistic and a little bit nervous. I wish we were all playing in the spring. I'll just be honest. I, I do. I just wish the whole thing would shift to the spring. There's nothing wrong with that. We could do the same thing. It could be just as exciting. Uh, it, it just seems like it would be safer for everybody. I'm convinced half these universities are trying to get kids on campus solely to justify playing football. And it's like, what are we doing? But that aside, I can't wait to see Derek King. And, you know, I'm always a believer that, that I look at Miami's schedule and on paper, if this guy's what we think he is, and we know the weapons that Miami has, if, you know, we don't have to protect them, obviously offensive line has been such a huge gap. You know, why shouldn't Miami end up in the ACC title game? 
against Clemson. Yeah. It's unfortunately my bar, but it's my bar every year. I mean, that's, that's what's unfortunate <laughs> about, you know, I know we don't have the resources of other universities, but I'm, I'm always like, we have the best recruiting backyard in the country. Maybe Texas is the only other that could say that. Yeah, we, we've talked to Uncle Luke, Luther Campbell, and he's saying how, you know, not enough of those kids from Miami are going to Miami right now, and that's part of the problem. But the pandemic, I hate to, I hate to say this, the pandemic, I think, has been a boon for Miami in recruiting. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems as if, look, because you can't travel, it, I think it's allowed Miami's home field advantage in recruiting is clearly, I mean, just look at this 2021 class that they're putting together. I mean, again, I'm, I, I'm green and orange glasses, but the pandemic is reminding people in Miami why they like being close to home. You mentioned being the eternal optimist, and I'm wondering what quarterback you fell for the most that you bought into. Like, were you a big Ja'Cory Harris guy, and then it's just like, oh, I guess he's not as good as I thought. Like, who, who, which, which UM's team or quarterback tricked you the most? Oh, which one? Kyle oh. Wright. I mean, oh, Kyle Wright. No, but <laughs> oh, yeah. Kyle Wright is to me. I mean, it's it's such a reminder. I think the best recruiting class in university history is the one that Kyle Wright was number one, right? Number player of the year. I mean, that is the biggest bust I think we've ever had. Oh, so big. Forget any of the others. In fact, that whole thing, you know, Miami, it never, Larry Coker never recovered from that. Chuck, I, I, I agree that from Derek Colorado. King, the, the transfer quarterback from Houston, he looks, he looks really good. And um, uh, this is where I want to invite Chuck Todd to make news on our podcast by not only, not only guaranteeing <laughs> that the Canes are going to be in the ACC championship game, but that Derek King is going to be in the Heisman Trophy race right into the last week of the season. I actually think he will. I mean, first of all, how many – there's fewer candidates for the Heisman. True. Right? I mean, Miami games are – you know, he's going to get more television, television games than normal. If he does start off hot, the way ESPN owns the ACC stuff, I, I mean, I think there's real opportunity for him that if he's what we're being sold, I absolutely think because Miami's – got the brand name if Miami's winning Miami's got eight or nine wins and and you know I'm, I'm assuming they get eight games I thought it was interesting what Blake James said he thought if they get eight games in we should be happy um, I expect them to only have one loss or less and if they do I think it'll be because he's the real deal and you know um, if he's a highlight reel ESPN ACC Nexus I think helps out a lot Chuck I want to uh, sneak in a couple of um, uh, more serious questions before we get back around to some fun and then let you go. Um, as the moderator of Meet the Press, uh, you're in the middle of arguably the most interesting, challenging time for a broadcast journal, for any journalist. Uh, amid everything going on, mm-hmm. you know, we're in the age of disinformation, polarized politics, even partisan media. Uh, you, you try to be an actual fair news program and, and get criticized for having a Republican on the panel. I mean, how do you navigate... Yeah the situation that you're in right now? Well, it's funny you say that. You know, my wife actually gave me some pretty good advice recently when, when she just simply said, look, you got to understand people are on, on edge about this current situation we're in. And I'll be honest, I'm not enjoying the job the way I used to. All right, there was a, I'm, I, I consider myself a happy warrior journalist, if that makes sense. Uh, you strike me as someone that way. You, you're, you're trying, you know, you, you try to let face value. You try to treat things at face value. You try, to, you try to at least be reasonable about putting yourself in another person's shoes, you know. And I also am mindful. I, I want, I, I'm trying to break through these silos. I don't want 
just an audience that lives in one silo. That's our problem. I think we don't have a, when you don't have a shared set of values uh, as a country right now, we're, we, that becomes problematic. You have some shared set of facts that, that, that sort of, sort of define the whole phrase United States of America. So um, I, I'm sort of looking at it as this is short term and sort of think about where we want to be in a year, where we hope the country expect, you know, where, you know, it's sort of like, I, I'm also mindful of, you know, you only can go through that door once and you have to be careful of your own dispo disposition here. Um, I've seen a lot of my colleagues, I think, I think they've crossed a few lines. I understand why they have, because this is, this is, I lose sleep, very stressful to regularly get death threats is a weird thing. I, you know, the fact that I now it's so regular, I don't think about it that much. So there's, there's been a lot of stress put on us in the media in ways that we've never, we've ne never experienced. But I also try to remind myself, yeah, I'm still protected by the first amendment and there are journalists overseas that are truly in harm's way in ways that, that, that we're not here. So I've understood why some of my colleagues have sort of lost their cool, but I do believe we've got to hope that we can at least listen to folks on both sides of the aisle still. And I kind of think Meet the Press continues, has to be that gathering place. I've always viewed it, it's sort of, look, you introduced it, it's the longest running television show. I want it to always have credibility with folks on, on, on no matter their political stripe, it's, it's public affairs yes. for a reason. Look, it's a matter of fact to state that we have a president right now who is anti First Amendment by everything he said, including referring to journalists as enemies. No, he is. And, and, that, and that's a dangerous thing. Look, I think the worst thing that has happened is that we in the media have become treated like we're politicians too. It's actually made me more empathetic to elected officials. I've, I tell these elected officials that. And in some ways they're like, it's harder to be, you know, you get attacked more now in the press sometimes than you do than sitting senators do. And I'm like, you know, we've really screwed this up. I don't think members of the media should be principals, if that makes sense. And, it, mm -hmm. and it's something that I continue yeah. to hope we, we sort of pull out of that, uh, pull out of that mode. Chuck, in, in, in my day-to-day -day life, based on what I do for a living, people are, are always coming up to me and hitting me with, uh, hey, are, are, the, are the Dolphins ever going to be good again? Again, are they going to win in my lifetime? And, and, and so I'm, in that spirit, I'm required to ask you by law uh, how you see the presidential election shaking out, because I'm sure you, that, that's the, the, the go-to thing you get at at a, I was going to say at a dinner party, but back in the day when we had dinner parties, how do you see this fall shaking out? Well, look, I think it's, I think we saw, a, we got a preview of it this week. I mean, I think you, you're going to have a president who's going to, he's behind and candidates who are behind or are, are going to do everything they can to throw, to do anything to throw off or change the subject. Um, look, I think the debates are going to be the last chance uh, in this case for the president. I think to change the trajectory. Look, I, I does feel as if that Biden basically is put to put together Clinton's coalition plus the additional third party vote. What's been interesting here, and this is sort of where I, if you ran this election sort of war game to 10 times, I think seven out of 10 times, you're going to get a result that's similar to 2012 with Biden getting somewhere between, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 310 to 330 electoral votes. It just, there's no evidence that the president has put together a coalition that has been able to do either one of two things, get his coalition to 47 or 48%. There's no evidence he can get to there. Or if he can't do that, make 45 or 46 a winning number. Now, four years ago, 46% was a winning number because you had six to 7% of people that voted for somebody that wasn't Trump or Clinton. 
you know, it wasn't in big numbers individually for the Jill Steins or the Gary Johnsons, but collectively you did have six to 7%. There is not nearly the amount of attention in third party candidates this year. And so I actually think that's going to be Biden's margin of victory. I'm not one of those who think there's a chance this is Reagan Carter 1980 and, you know, if Biden could win foreign electoral votes. Um, but I don't view that. We're too polarized for that. We're, that's just not the country we are anymore. There's, you know, Trump on his worst day is going to get 45, I believe. And so could he get to, you know, to me, watch his job rating number. If he gets it to 47, then it's, then it, and, and then the electoral college can become a coin flip. But if his job rating sits at 45 and his, and his raw numbers at 45, we're most likely headed for a 2012 like split, which would, and look, and I believe Florida will be with the winning presidential candidate. Yeah, that's interesting because, as you know, we're we're a huge swing state, arguably uh, the swing state. Um, I'm I'm wondering, Chuck, and, and I want to ask oh, you this. Easily. Yeah, and and you know, you're a journalist. You're also an American citizen. So I'm asking you this from both vantages. What's your degree of optimism yeah. that this is going to be a fair election? I I continue to underestimate the lines that President Trump will cross. You know, I'm one of those who thought maybe the, the way the office would change him quickly faded. But again, I go back to my disposition always wants to try to, you know, you know, okay, or being, being representative here. Um, he has shown a willingness to use the levers of power in ways that no, no elected official I've ever seen was willing to do. I think because elections are run locally, I have high confidence that the elections themselves are going to be very fair, okay? Because they're run locally, and it's very where I I wouldn't underestimate things have announcements from the Justice Department, announcements from DHS, election security, you know, um, using the official. Uh, unfortunately, he has shown a willing to do this, and so you asked me about my confidence in, in this being fair. I do not think the president will play fair does doesn't mean the result will be unfair. Okay. I have confidence in the ability of our election system, how he conducts himself in the week before and the week after the election is where I think he has justifiably made a lot of us skeptical that, that he will act within the norms of our democracy. Are you skeptical at all about the polling and stuff like that? Because four years ago, and tell me if I'm wrong, because obviously you have way more better information on this than I do, but four years ago, wasn't Hillary a big favorite on exit, on polls yeah. and stuff? And so like, you know, silent majority and all that stuff. Like, what's your concern yeah. about that whole stuff? And your, and your, how much do you rely on polling? So look, um, one of the things I did with our polls, I mean, I, and I'll get into the weeds a little bit here, um, is... We did discover there's not a silent vote out there. There's just an unpolled vote out there, okay? And it's in, it's in the rural parts of rural counties, okay? The more rural, the, the most rural parts of the rural counties, of the smaller counties. And what we discovered in our polling, we would have, the, you know, the way you do a poll properly is you want to make sure you, you have to have the right amount of respondents and by, you know, you look at it by gender, you look at it by the census, but you also want graphic split. And so you weight counties. Well, the problem we ran into is it turned out when you do random digit dialing, and this is, again, I'm getting into a little bit of the weeds, that we were talking to the wrong people in those rural counties. 
there's a difference between people that live in the more urban parts of a rural county and people that live in the most rural parts of a rural county. And so we were undersampling Trump by about two to three points. And we believe at least that we have found like this was simply, we were talking to the wrong people in these rural counties, pure and simple. And by the way, we've been making this mistake. It turned out for 50 years, but it rural America had never been this polarized before. Previously, rural America was a much more, a little more of a 60-40 split in recent years, even. It's really only been in these, in the, in the sort of post-Obama era that we've seen the divide get to more like 90-10, and then that's when it ended up impacting our polling. So I, I really believe we have found an analytical answer to this, not some sort of emotional one, but you're right. I understand why you're skeptical, Chris. I get it. Chuck, we're going to let you go in just a minute, but I'm, I'm curious... Um... What have been your pinch me moments? Uh, the, the moment, maybe it's, it's somebody you had the pleasure of meeting or interviewing, you know, all of a sudden you're thinking, uh, hey, I'm, I'm Chuck Todd from Killian High and now I'm sitting here talking to so-and-so. So I know my answer is supposed to be sitting face-to-face with the presidents and doing that. And those have been interesting moments. The pinch me moment was, it was Billy Mays in uh, 2009. The All-Star game was in St. Louis and Obama's throwing out the first pitch. And the way it works on Air Force One is, is the networks rotate every five days. One network is, quote, pool for, and represents, and there's a television seat on Air Force One. There's a print seat. There's a wire seat, things like that. It just so happened the rotation was an NBC, and I'm chief White House correspondent, so I pull rank. I'm like, no, 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 I'm going because I wanted to go to the All-Star game. Well, uh, at the time, the press secretary says, hey, bring it. you should bring a couple of baseballs with you. We're going to be picking up a special guest. So we, we, he has an event in Michigan that day. And then all of a sudden we go, it was DC to Michigan and then Michigan to St. Louis for the game that night. And uh, it's Willie Mays. And so Robert Gibbs, who was the press secretary at the time, brings Willie, didn't bring the president back, brought Willie Mays back to the press cabin. So there we are getting to interview Willie Mays. And all these other guys are throwing, what's it like? What was it like to hit against Colfax? What was it like to do this? What was it like to do that? And then I simply asked him, I said, um, what's it like to be on this plane? And he goes, <laughs> you know, and this was, was right with the, with, with the, with the first black president. And he goes, it was all worth it. All of it. And it was just, it, it said, I ended up, it had such an impact on me because, you know, I've always been proud of, you know, one of the reasons that, that I, I'm, you know, I just, you know, baseball did it first, right. Baseball is, is, you know, after, doing it wrong, did it right, and, and broke the color barrier first. And those guys went through hell in the 50s. They had as much to do about getting Barack Obama elected president as, as Martin Luther King did too. And what those guys had to put up with in the 50s. So to just hear Willie say that phrase, he didn't go have to go into any other part of it. He goes, oh, it was all worth it, right? And you could just, you could hear both the relief and exhaustion and excitement all in one. And I'm thinking, Man, I got because it, it, it was it wasn't just meeting Willie Mays. It was feeling this connection to American history with it. Yeah, so that's cool. that has topped all of my moments so far, you know, wow. and, it, and I'll be honest, that memory gets better with age and it sort of feels more poignant with age for me. What's the coolest thing that people don't really know about Air Force One? Do you have any cool nuggets about Air Force One being on it? Yeah, it looks the first, the press cabin is like first class from 1975. <laughs> it's, it's terrible. It's the most, most over. Now, the parts for the president are great, 
but the press cabin, like they've remodeled everything except the press cabin. I mean, which of course is just sort of classic, right? You know, screw the press. But but it's it's look, it's fantastic. There's a queen size bed, like it's amazing for the president. But the press cabin itself is just it, like I said, it it looks like it's remainders from an Eastern <laughs> Airlines garage sale. What's the spread like on there? Like what kind of like food? Like what kind of like for the press? I mean, not for the president. Like what do you like? Do you guys get options on that? Yeah, there is, and it's actually the Air Force chefs. And um, the only issue is that it's pretty bland because they're military cooking, and they got to be that way. But it's usually actually pretty good. And if it wasn't, you wouldn't catch me disparaging Air Force cooking. So sorry. There you go. You do get a small, uh, extra small bag of peanuts if you ask for it. Well, no, you do get the M and M's. You know, the the M and M's with the uh, with the president's names on them. Um, so, oh, nice. You know, okay. Yeah, that 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 is sort of the the tchotchke that they. Uh, that's the big giveaway. But it's actually secretly a big pain to ride because you have to do a lot of work. When you're playing pool, you know this, Greg. You've done pool, I'm sure, in the past. Yep. You're like, pool duty, yes, you get to have the front row seat, but you, you also you have to do all the work. Right. While, you know, somebody else gets to take your color that you wrote and then, you know, also enjoy a beer and a hot dog. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I'm thankful every week that, that we do this podcast uh, uh, on tape and that uh, – Christopher can can edit it and all to to keep me from looking like uh, an embarrassment. And and I'm just wondering, uh, what's the funniest or or most embarrassing moment or or slip up you've had on on TV? Oh, it's um, I think um, YouTube will tell you. I got caught flipping the bird. And here's the best part. I was I was responding to Mike Barnacle. So it's just sort of our way of saying hello. I was getting ready to be on Morning Joe. And Barnacle's on set and he's just pointing at me and he flips me the bird and I'm like, and I flip it back and I'm really proud of my bird. I have a very, I think, you know, I, I, I've worked on it for years when you're, we've dealt with, we grew up with Miami traffic, Sure. you know, it's, yeah. Let me see it. You know, it. Let me see it. You know, here it is. Oh yeah. Uh, that's, that's a good bird. Good form. Good, good form. Yeah, good form. Right. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, I was in all my glory and it was right when they took the preview shot. It's me standing there with, with, with David Gregory, um, who like is enormous. He's like a foot taller than I am. And that makes me seem like I'm like 5'2". I'm actually 5'11", but he's, you know, 6'5". And I'm sitting there flipping the bird. Sadly, it's, Chris, I'm sure you've already found it on YouTube. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's, that's easily the most embarrassing moment. Um, uh, but it was at Mike Barnacle, that son of a, you know. <laughs> All right, let me see if this works. Can you guys see my screen right now? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Here we go. Oh, you All have right. this. All right. We're cutting right here. All right. They're oh, there it to, is. They're, they're about to throw it over. Let's yeah. see. And then here he is. There he is over there. Wow, that guy is tall. That's good. Yeah. Ah! Epic! <laughs> Epic! <laughs> <laughs> and then right now, your guy standing next to you is like, oh, you realize you just did that on air and you kind of, you turn red a little bit. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. that's yeah. great. That's, that's a beautiful thing. And, and on that note, thanks a lot, guys. Jesus. Uh, will you promise uh, our listeners Cody right family. now? He's going to destroy my career. Well, you do have a, a, a way above average raised middle finger, so I want to congratulate you for that. And um, uh, it, it, on a more serious All note, it. Chuck, congratulations for uh, a, a wonderful career, and, and you're at the pinnacle right Is there anything else you want to do, or yeah. is Meet the Press the pinnacle? Like, what's next for you? Well, look, I, I am way into documentaries lately and, and more importantly, how there's a whole generation, I think of, I think millennials in particular, you know, documentaries when it comes to history, I think in some ways can be more impactful 
and a better way to teach history than, than books are these days. So I'm, I'm really, I'd love to sort of get into that world of being able to do docudrama. I mean, I love Chernobyl, for instance. Mm-hmm. And it's something that if it, and where you get to sort of tell an important part of history, but you but dramatize it. Because you know what? I, you know, to me, it doesn't matter. You can write how you do it if you're educating people and, and it takes a little entertainment to get the education through. That's okay. So, you know, that's something that, you know, one thing I, I think that I've learned is I don't want to hang around too long in the public space. You know, I think I've seen too many of my cop. you know, we've all seen it. You, you, I, I hope to leave when people say, hey, why are you leaving? Yeah. Not, oh, of course you are, if that makes sense. You know, I think we all want to leave in our own terms, though. I always say in the television business, I use, the, I use this line, the television business is like this line in the movie Cocktail. Everything ends badly or else it wouldn't end. And so a lot of television careers seem to always go south fast the way it works in our business. But I hope to, I hope to escape that. <laughs> well, uh, will you promise our listeners right now that if Miami reaches the ACC championship game, you will come back on the podcast and join us in a preview of that game. Of course, God, I have, God willing, yeah, absolutely, All absolutely. Right. You, you know, there's a UM helmet on my set on Meet the Press. I just haven't been on my set of Meet the Press in six months, but that is a, a I have kept a Miami helmet, uh, a gift of the University of Miami, by the way, athletic nice. department. In all seriousness, it's been a real honor to have you on. I, I've admired you oh, well. for years, and um, thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. That was fun. Thanks, Greg. I, I, I love being from Miami. I, I miss it. I miss, Good. you know, I, I am, and only real Miamians can trash Miami. Put it that way. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Chuck. Bye, guys. Okay. Thank you, Chuck Todd, very much. That was a delight to have, uh, to have that guy on. And, uh, and we're going to get to Mount Greg Moore in a minute. But first, as a, as a quick interlude, I want to reference something from, from last week. Uh, I tweeted about this. Uh, I spoke about it at length on the Levitard show. Um, but I want to uh, mention it directly to my podcast audience as well, because last week, as many of you know, um, uh, a fairly lengthy part of the podcast was, was taken out, was censored by my company, the Miami Herald. And um, uh, I totally disagreed with that decision. Uh, I respected it in the sense that I understood um, all of the sensitivity of the topic and all of the pressure the Miami Herald was under. But uh, basically, just to set it up real quickly, you know, we had a colleague of mine in the sports department tweet something that didn't go over very well because it seemed to suggest that uh, Black Lives Matters protesters were un-American or were bashing America. And this is what I said in the podcast that I would very much now like to air. If you're rallying for racial justice, if you're saying there's systemic racism in this country because of all the examples we've seen and continue to see, that doesn't make you un-American. And, you know, when Armando and others tweet things like, I'm so sick of the America bashing, that's an anachronism. That reminds me back in the Vietnam War days where there was a popular bumper sticker that said, America, love it or leave it. And when you tell me that you're sick of the America bashing, by people who live in America, that is off point, it's tone deaf. And um, Americans who are protesting right now in the streets, they want a better America. They're demanding a better America. And I don't know how anyone can be against that cause. I don't wanna elaborate beyond that, uh, but, but I did wanna be upfront and transparent with you all to, uh, to let you know what, what didn't get in, some of what didn't get in 
last week. So now let's move on to something a lot more frivolous and fun. It's called Mount Gregmore. Yay. Yay, the Mount Gregmore name game. And you know what? This is the history-making edition of the Mount Gregmore game. Why? Oh, uh, listen, told you last week, as we put the eyes and Ivan to bed, that Jay was the king of all letter names. And I'm about to tell you why. People out there with Jay first names, walk a little taller today. Get up on the balls of your feet and strut. Preen, for you wear the raiments of royal nomenclature. We bring you the top five first names of the week's letter based on the overall top 100 list of the past century via government records. And J is the first and only letter whose top five names are all in the overall top 10. You heard it right. You heard it right. Not only that. You're getting emotional? I am getting emotional. Not only that, the top two J's rank one, two overall as the most popular first names in America. Gotta be John. I mean, this is big. We we ought to have Jay Lowe in here to read this for us. Um, The top five J's. Number five, Joshua. Number four, Jennifer. Number three, Joseph. Number two, John. And number one, James. Wow. Now, Jimmy, I want to tell you, I don't usually break it down to stats, but James edges John by 4.76 million Jameses to 4.55 million Johns for the ultimate crown. Now, a reminder, and Christopher's gonna hate this, but a reminder, James means only people who go by the first name James. Sorry, but you're not welcome here, LeBron, and neither are you, all you Jims and Jimmies. This is James. And I'll tell you, this was, honestly, this was so tough to whittle down to a top five that our honorable mention uh, is a quick parade of the great Jameses that we had to cut. We're talking about James Franco and Woods, James Cameron and Stewart, James Kahn and Galdafini, James Madison and Monroe, James Corden and Cagney, James Joyce and Garfield, even King James couldn't get in. And it pained us to have to leave off the mellow voice of fire and rain himself, James Taylor. Wow. Now to the mountaintop of the tallest name. Number five, now 89 years old, he is a great American actor of film, theater, and TV. Credits include Roots on Golden Pond, East Side, West Side, The Great White Hope, Dr. Strangelove, and Of Mice and Men. But it is that voice, that basso profundo, the lowest range of human sound. This man is Darth Vader. He is Mufasa from The Lion King. He is James Earl Jones. I like it. Number four. He is the highest scoring left-handed shooter in NBA history. Wow. A Hall of Fame bound eight-time All-Star. First for Oklahoma City and now Houston. Still alive for his first championship. He's led the league in scoring the past three straight seasons. Most important, he leads the league in beard. He's James Harden. Wow. Number three. He was an American actor who was a cultural icon of teen disillusionment in his most famous film, 1955's Rebel Without a Cause. The American Film Institute named him one of the 20 greatest male actors of the golden age of Hollywood. Well, imagine his stature today had he not died tragically at age 24. He had a racing background 
but a collision with a Ford pickup left him dead inside the cockpit of a Porsche he called the Little Bastard. Such is the legend of James Dean. I feel like James Earl Jones should be number one on this list. Number two. <laughs> Thank you for that unsolicited advice. It's called Mount Gregmore, not Mount Crismore. Number two. The 24 films about him have grossed more than $7 billion. He was a British Secret Service spy developed by writer Ian Fleming, and seven actors from Sean Connery to Daniel Craig have portrayed him. He liked his martinis shaken, not stirred, did 007, and he liked his women any way he could get them. His name? Bond. James Bond. <laughs> That's solid. And now, number one, the King of Kings. He was born to a 16-year-old girl in a small wooden shack and went on to be a towering influence in 20th century music and dance. He was the hardest working man in show business, the godfather of soul, with iconic albums like Live at the Apollo and hits like Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, I Feel Good, Sex Machine, and Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. When pneumonia took him on Christmas Day 2006, his last words were, I'm going away tonight, but the legend lives on. James Brown. Hey, he's got to be number one. I feel like James Earl Jones should have been number two, though. Okay. You know what? It'll be tough to top this list next week because the James are the royalty of name letters. But stay tuned because the K's are girding to give it a shot. Gotta be Kevin. We'll see. I don't even know who it is. Actually, I do, but I'm not telling you. It's Kevin, isn't it? Um, let me look. It's uh, not Kevin. And more than that, I will not say. Wow. Kevin is in the top five. I mean, I'm hooked. I'm going to be back next week to find out. <laughs> yeah, you got that right. Okay, we're wrapping this up, right? We're putting a bow on it. It's been a special episode. Uh, really enjoyed having Chuck Todd, the Meet the Press moderator and rabid UM Hurricanes fan, on to talk politics and, and Canes football and all that stuff. That was enjoyable. Uh, what I want to say now in wrapping it up is podcast family, we love you all. And um, we appreciate you being back with us every single week. We drop Monday morning every week. And please uh, listen, rate, subscribe, review, because it's important to us. And we do this for, for you all. So uh, we'll see you next week and uh, that kind of thing. I feel like you do this for yourself. Well, there's some of that, but uh, I really, there's a lot of reasons I started this podcast, but I, I can say honestly that the reaction we've gotten, the response we've gotten has been humbling and, and gratifying. And, um, and really one of the highlights of my career is, is how uh, you and I together have, have sort of uh, taken a blank sheet of paper and, and, colored it in with uh, what's been a successful podcast and, and that means the world to me it really does so we'll see you all next week thanks a lot bye bye